You're listening to Trial by Media, a behind-the-scenes true crime podcast. We'll lift the lid on crime and how it's covered, bringing you the biggest cases from Britain's courts. You've read the coverage, here's the full story. You might work in law, or policing, or criminal journalism. You might be a student, or you might just be interested in how trials are tried by the media, but whatever you do, be warned. We talk about some of the most violent events in recent history. Today we'll take a deep dive into the truly mad events behind the UK's largest terrorism trial and how it played out in the press. We've had so many heartbreaking news alerts in the last few years, we're quite numb to them. London Bridge, Streatham, Reading, Thornton Heath, Westminster, Parsons Green, Finsbury Park Mosque, London Bridge again, Manchester Arena, Joe Cox. Later, you'll be hearing crime journalist Sophia DeRue talk about the alarming rise in far-right terrorism, a Christchurch copycat, and a man who was cleared by a jury after storming Buckingham Palace with a sword. But first, we'll talk to editor Cameron Charters, who practically lives in the Old Bailey and covered the UK's largest terrorism trial. I'm your host, Charlie Jones. So, Cameron, what happened that night at the Manchester Arena? That night at the Manchester Arena... 14,054 people arrived between 6pm and 7.30pm. total of 14,098 tickets were sold online and over the counter. The musician they were going to see was Ariana Grande. By about 10.32pm, the first emergency services had arrived and between those two time frames, a improvised explosive device had been detonated, causing widespread destruction. There were 22 people killed. The youngest was an eight-year-old. The eldest was 50. And over 260 people were injured. Who was responsible? There were two brothers. Hashem Abedi, the younger brother, stood trial at the Old Bailey and was convicted, while his elder brother, who detonated the bomb, didn't stand trial for obvious reasons. He was called Salomon. He was killed in the gig after he, the bomb exploded. And the case, which as was brought at trial, was very much that the two brothers had worked together to ensure that this could happen, this bomb could be exploded. The idea was that they would scope out the concert arena beforehand. So Salomon had actually visited to take that gig uh, just days before. They had purchased chemicals and sort of metal bolts and nails which would be used as a shrapnel and in a sort of, if you can imagine, a vegetable oil tin which was used as the container for the explosive devices. And the sort of chemicals they were purchasing were hydrogen peroxide and the quantities in which these were being purchased would be said to be about 30 litres, which is substantial amounts. And so they visited the Take That concert at the same venue just before. Were they ever planning to attack that one as well, or was that just to sort of scope it all out? Well, I mean, it's hard to know what was in the mind of Salomon when he attended the Take That concert. I don't, I don't know if there was something particular to Ariana Grande which made them choose that date, and, and I don't know if it was ever an option for it to be the Take That gig, but um, it was very much to reconnoiter the area when Salomon visited to take that gig. The explosion happened in 2017 and Abedi wasn't wasn't charged until I think it was 2019 or 2020. So what took so long? Well, after the explosion, 
Russian Babedi fled and ended up in Libya. Now, Libya was in a state of um, turmoil since the deposing of Gaddafi. And the UK authorities and Libya have always had a rather fraught relationship. There was a question of extradition, and given that under the treaty we had we had with Libya at the time, we had had great difficulty. I don't believe we'd ever succeeded in extraditing anyone from Libya in the past. Though we may thinking of the Lockerbie bombings, we may have extradited somebody to Libya, but I don't think we'd ever managed to extradite somebody from Libya. So that was unprecedented, and this was something which Stephen Camlish QC was very concerned about when he was defending Abedi in the preliminary hearings before the trial. So how did we get him back? Well, in one of the preliminary hearings, it was mentioned that a figure of money, 9.2 million, was given in aid to Libya. And after that, the extradition was made possible. The request for extradition was delivered to Libya in November 2017. This would have been in the time of Boris Johnson being the foreign minister. I don't know if it was ever linked as being consequential or, or cause and effect. But it was nonetheless aired in court that the two things seemed to coincide. Right, so we requested Abedi in 2017 and it took two years for Libya to hand him over to us in 2019 after we'd paid £9.2 million to get him back. If we're assuming it was a bribe with foreign aid, is that, do you know the legality of that, Cam? I don't think it was ever quite couched put in the terms of it, it, it being a bribe. These these negotiations are, are, can often be very, very murky. And I don't know, because it was never specifically said that the money was, in, was for the extradition, I don't know if the question of legality ever arose. But what I could move you towards is that Stephen Canlish was very interested in Hashem Abedi's statements as having been tortured at the hands of militia in Libya at the time and, and the admissibility of that evidence. What was the process like? Because obviously the trial was held in the Old Bailey in London. What was that like for the victims and their families? Were there lots having to travel back and forth from Manchester or were there provisions set up for them to be able to attend? There was a live stream link available from one of the Manchester Crown Courts. Uh, it was just two in Manchester. And also some travelled to London and stayed there to hear the evidence. And I think it would have been, either one would have been extraordinarily stressful. Yeah. And do you think it's right that maybe the biggest crime committed in Manchester ever, do you think that's right that that's tried in London? Or do you think it should maybe have been tried in Manchester? The general rule is that where the crime is committed, so the trial is heard, there are flexibilities. And one consideration maybe is the crime of such notoriety that it is inconceivable that there'd be a jury which wouldn't in some way be, be tainted. By tainted, I mean know someone who was at the concert that night, perhaps know somebody who was injured or even died. These things would be very sensitive and defence lawyers would be very, very keen, as as well as prosecution lawyers and, and the uh, the judiciary to ensure that any jury which sat on a trial of that nature was, was totally without connection and prejudice to the case. So that's why the Old Bailey was probably selected. And if you say, well, it didn't have to go to London, it could have gone to, for example, Birmingham, Newcastle, one of the other larger provincial crown courts. I think the Old Bailey has within the uh, justice system a understanding that it is the pinnacle of the crown courts. Right. And where were the parents in all this? Um, the Abadi parents. Yeah. They 
well, they lived in Manchester. Uh, as it came out in trial, they were on receiving housing benefits, um, much to the fury of uh, a great many people. I'm fairly certain at least one of them gave evidence. They weren't so much linked to the brothers at the time of their offending that they would, the brothers had really moved away and become quite quite separate from the family. They weren't living at home, for example. They were moving between properties in Manchester. Right. Are they still there now? I don't, I don't know where the parents would be at the moment, actually, although I suspect there may be some form of protection about their um, addresses. Of course. Uh, so there wasn't a family history of extremism or anything like that? You think this was the brothers completely going off on their own tangent? My understanding is that the Abadi family fled Libya to escape Gaddafi. So that's as much as I really know about their origins. As far as I'm aware, there was no history of extremism in the family. Yeah. And... It's obviously a massive understatement to say that Muslims take the flack for most terrorist offences. But is there a way, do you think, to cover cases like this without contributing to harmful stereotypes? Well, I'm always slightly wary when I listen to cases uh, where allegations of terrorism are involved. In just, in just how committed the defendants are to the cause, which has almost been uh, ascribed to them, I often see men in the dock who are not very conversant with the religion they profess to be defenders of and are far more interested in hard drugs and they're often really quite mad uh, in their approach. So I suppose it's not so much how the case is covered but the legislation and the understanding of the, of the defence motivation is slightly misguided. I mean there is an issue which all our government has to face, which is that when there are horrendous acts of terror, which undoubtedly there, there are, and the case of a baby is undoubtedly an example of that, because it was, in its literal sense, terrifying. There is then a backlash of how can we be seen to be clamping down on people who are in possession of, say, for example, manuals and, you know, extremist material. I think sometimes people are thrown in as being terrorists when really they are just loners who have latched onto a cause, and often they, they, are, they are drug users. So their mind is totally addled. Yeah. So you're saying we might be too quick to label people as terrorists, and some would more accurately be described as that combination which isn't uncommon in court, someone who's addicted, ill, broken, and as a result, violent, but not using violence to advance a political aim. So which one does Abadi fit into, or were we right to charge him with terrorism? So it's just, just on, sorry, sorry, Charlie, just on that point, um, he was never actually charged under terrorist legislation. He was charged under 22 counts of murder, one of attempted murder and possession of explosive substances. He wasn't charged under um, the Terrorism Act, um, either the more recent two, 2005 Terrorism Act or the previous 2000 Terrorism Act, which is quite striking. Why, why do you think he wasn't charged under that legislation? Well, I did ask this to his defence lawyer, and I think the understanding was that the context of the case was accepted to be terror, terrorist, but I was always struck when listening to the evidence that though there were examples of an extremist ideology, which is the phrase which is used, a great deal of the case was progressing on a forensic basis, which would involve communications over the telephone, internet searches, and it was only a few times when something would come up which could be seen to be linked to a um, hardened view of uh, Islam. 
uh, and there was an Arabic Gmail account which was used to order the 30 litres of hydrogen peroxide which I mentioned before and translated from the Arabic it would roughly come to mean we have come to slaughter but this was by no means the overwhelming tract of the evidence it was it was something one had to look for in the evidence to try and see if there was a connection for an hardened view of Islam. What did you get the sense that his motivation was for getting the legislation? Did you get a sense that it was an extremist fundamentalist ideology which he was for? Or was there, you know, was that was it sort of sibling pressure? Was there any other motivations at play here? Well, when the bomb went off on the 22nd of May 2017, he, I think it's important to note, wasn't actually at the concert. So his, his brother was of course and killed himself and many others but he wasn't no i think that may be an indication i actually if i, if I recall I, I believe he was already in libya or, or on the way his his view of the case and what he was doing was somewhat of a mystery but what i can give and which might be more assistance is that he, he came across as somebody who felt himself to be superior and beyond the laws which govern human conduct although he had been involved in and helped perpetrate one of the most horrific crimes and British history, he was by no means eccentric in manner or remarkable, quite quite the sort of person you could pass at a train station and not look, not look twice at. And despite his sort of overriding mediocrity, was, was clearly capable of uh, conspiring to commit such a foul uh, act. What was his defence? Why, why did he bother going for a trial? I think there's an element in all people when they face overwhelming odds at trial that if I if I plead guilty now I'm definitely going to prison so if I deny it there's a 1% chance I'll walk out so it's sort of the last chance saloon if you like his 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 case was never positively put before a jury by that I mean he didn't give evidence so I can't um, tell you what he would have said to the allegations but I could give you an indication that the cross-examination and the sort of the the court battle was very much based on the breakdown of the minutiae of the case and the forensic. So it was a technical dispute in a lot of areas, rather than a um, if you if you sort of imagine televised courtroom debates and prolonged speeches. It wasn't that. It was a continuous breakdown of the evidence on a detail by detail basis. Right and. Do you think justice was done? Do you think 55 years is appropriate? Are you happy with how it all played out? Well, no, I'm not happy about how it played out because the, the offence was committed and I think uh, prevention of crime is, should be the priority rather than rather than punishment of crime. So in a sense, you can't um, write a, an unjust act by a punitive measure after the event. But I suppose... In the circumstances that the, the court found itself in, the, the, the sentence was fitting for the for the, the offence. Other than the whole lifetime, I don't know what else could have been achieved. Will he ever get out of prison? No. If he does, it will be an outrage. The sentence is 50, minimum of 55 years. What this means is not that after 55 years he will be released. This means he's eligible to be released by the parole board. He would have to apply to be released, and the parole board, if they had any sense about him, would refuse it. And finally, will he be kept in general population in prison? I don't know what his categorisation is as a prisoner, but I suspect he will be in an isolation unit. Because not all, you know, you mentioned before about uh, the terrorism in this country seems to be overwhelmingly linked with Islam as a faith. 
a great many prisoners in our high security units are, are very much of the other persuasion and may be hardened right in their um, political approach. Um, and if they, you know, I mean, just put it very uh, crudely, if they got hold of him, I have no doubt they'd kill him. So I think he'll be in isolation. Because, of course, also, if you want to flip it on the other side, if he's allowed into the general population, as has been um, reported by the Times newspaper in quite a substantial way, there has uh, been a, a large question of radicalisation behind prison bars. And, of course, Abedi, having done what he has done, may well be seen to be a um, perverse martyr or icon. And so if people of persuasion similar to him were able to interact with him, the consequences could be quite dire. So I should have thought isolation. I should have hoped isolation. This Uber driver somehow convinced the jury he wasn't a terror threat until they caught him planning attacks on other beloved days and institutions. So, Sophia, tell us about Chowdhury. Mahisunath Chowdhury was a former Uber driver from Luton who was arrested in 2019 for planning terror attacks on high-profile targets, including Gay Pride, Madame Tussauds, and a London double-decker tourist bus. The charge was preparing acts of terrorism. He said that non-Muslims were fair game, and the objective was to unleash death and suffering on them. His sister, Snea, was charged with one count of failing to disclose information about acts of terrorism. Days before he was arrested, he quit his job and told his sister, I'm going to do another attack, bro. He was sentenced for life with a minimum term of 25 years. Snea was actually given a two-year suspended sentence. Uh, they actually took it to the Court of Appeal for being unduly lenient, but the Court of Appeal upheld the suspended sentence, saying she was subjected to controlling behavior by male relatives. And how far did he get with these preparation, with preparing these acts of terrorism? How was he caught? So, well, these are two separate questions. The reason he was caught is because he had actually been arrested and tried for another terror attack. In 2017, he slashed at police officers with a sword outside of uh, Buckingham Palace while shouting, Allahu Akbar. He stood trial for attempting an act of terror, but an old Bailey jury cleared him after he successfully convinced them that he was just depressed and essentially attempting suicide by cop. While in jail, he continued to, uh, he drew pictures of uh, showing a police officer being murdered outside of Downing Street and some fan art of the 9-11 attacks. And as soon as he was released from prison in late 2018, after he was cleared, he immediately started planning another attack. In fact, days after release, he posted on Instagram a picture some art again, which included a rather voluptuous woman wearing a niqab on top of a motorcycle clutching a sword. So one thing we need to remember about this guy is he was deeply pathetic. Because he, had, he was already at the attention of the authorities, basically three undercover police officers posed as like-minded extremists and befriended him at the Luton chicken shop he was working at. And in terms of um, how, how far he got, he, um, he trained with wooden swords, sort of uh, wooden training swords that he purchased online, and he was training with his little sister. He practiced stabbing techniques. He enrolled in firearms training. He tried to get a real handgun, but when he couldn't, he got a replica one. And basically, yes, he was boasting to those undercover officers about how he was going to uh, do a big terror attack. So just to clarify, he was cleared of terrorism after waving a sword outside Buckingham Palace. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's one thing. But why why was he in prison doing these drawings if he was cleared? That was while the trial was ongoing. Obviously, he was on remand. Right, okay. And then this training with the wooden sword, that was after he was let out? Or exactly, was... exactly. So he met those, um, those men he believed to be fellow jihadis. And while he was talking to them, he was bo- he boasted about how he fooled the old Bailey jury. During the trial, his defense was that he wasn't actually going to do a terror attack. He was just trying to impress the undercover officers, and it was all jihad banter. So first time his defense was it was he was trying to commit suicide by a cop shooting him, mm-hmm. and the second one it was all banter. Yes, it's all banter, bruv. So are we quite confident saying that both of those were clearly lies? Yes. Well, he he said it in his trial. Uh, oh, n- not in his trial. Sorry, he said it to the undercover officers, and he was recorded and saying everything. So there was so much WhatsApp evidence, recorded evidence. It was it would have been basically impossible for um for a jury to clear him. And has it made you think twice about I don't know going to Buckingham Palace or going to Gay Pride or going to any of these places? Uh, no. I mean, I think. I think obviously you need to be aware of your surroundings and everything, but no, it doesn't make you reconsider your daily life. I mean, there were two attacks on London Bridge, and I was actually working at Silver Crown Court when the most recent one with the, uh, the Jack Marriott happened, mm. happened. And you know, it's you just you just get on with things. You can't let those people define how you live your life. And why do you think he wanted to do it? You know, how much of it was down, do you think, from religious extremism and were there any other forces at play? I would say that a lot of his... He was absolutely obsessed with finding a a good Muslim wife or a girlfriend or just any woman to pay attention to him. It was actually interesting. He had this whole list about what he planned to do when he got to Jannah, which is paradise. And top of the list were things like tour the entire property, choose main palace, meet all the wives and name and choose main too, decorate palace. Now, meeting Allah was actually a number seven. So uh, take of that of what you will. So he was, he was, he was a, a bit of a loser, a bit of a loner. He was overweight. He was absolutely an extremist, but we can't disregard all those other elements. And also another interesting thing is, while he was on remand at HMP Belmarsh during his first trial, he met the Parsons Green Bombers. He met a lot of terrorists that came back from Syria. And he was even telling the uh, the officers how those are real serious people. So there is also the, the problem of Islamic radicalization within the prison. Now, he was already radicalized. How do you think that we stop people being radicalized in prison? It's a sort of natural reaction, isn't it, when you put all criminals in one place that they're going to build a network? It's very difficult because, I mean, aside from people keeping people in isolation, which we actually kind of do now by default because of COVID, it's, it's very difficult. There's been some arguments that you could have some... Um, better imams going in and talking to them rather than having every nut job extremist priest holding court but I don't think it's a I don't think it's a simple lesson I think not holding all the dangerous terrorists uh, together is probably a good idea Mm. the interesting thing is also in his um, in his justification for uh, Islamic terrorism he actually referenced a book co-authored by um, Stephen Yaxley Lennon, who goes by Tommy Robinson, and YouTube vids by the far right to argue that violent jihad was mandated in the Quran. 
He also referenced um, the wow. Christchurch Church massacre, saying that the victims of that horrible uh, shooting in New Zealand were martyrs. With all the attention on terrorist attacks by so-called Muslim extremists, it's easy to forget that right-wing terrorism is the UK's fastest growing threat. Sophia, you wrote about a terrorist attack that happened the day after Christchurch. Vincent Fuller, who is a 50-year-old white supremacist, and I mention his age because that's generally older than people tend to be, get radicalized, uh, stabbed a 19-year-old Bulgarian chap in the neck in a Tesco car park in Surrey in a bid to kill a Muslim, uh, even though I believe the young man in question wasn't even a Muslim. He had watched a video of the Christchurch massacre a day before, and on that day he had also threatened to kill his ex-girlfriend. When a female police officer called him because he wasn't at his address, he told her words to the effect of, you can fuck off, little girl. So, so that's one interesting element because uh, there is this pipeline from misogynist incels, red pillars, all of those disgusting little online subcultures to white supremacy, even though the the man in question was not really online, as far as I can tell, he was just using Facebook. But before he went out on his spree, he posted on Facebook, I am English, no matter what the government say, kill all the non-English and get them all out of England. I agree with what that man did in New Zealand as we will not be brainwashed to this, they are wrong. When he started his rampage, he knocked on his Indian neighbor's door and yelled, come out you black, bad word for female genitalia. And he had previously racially abused her in the past. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of uh, red flags with this guy. He roamed the streets uh, armed first with a bat and then also brandishing a kitchen knife looking for a target. Uh, as the prosecutor, Jonathan Polney, put it, the attack was motivated by racial hatred and bolstered by the consumption of alcohol. He admitted attempted murder, racially aggravated fear of provocation of violence, a fray with an offensive weapon and possessing a knife, and he was jailed for nearly 19 years. And with, with far-right terrorists, is it usually Muslims who are their main target, do you find? Well... That's the thing. Uh, Muslims are a very popular target because they've been demonized so much by uh, certain far-right activists and certain newspapers. And and also, okay, there is like a legitimate... There's been so many ISIS-inspired attacks. There is a legitimate fear and concern about that. But in this case, I'd like to point out that no actual Muslims were actually targeted. It's like when, when the far-right attack Sikhs because they think they look Muslim or just anybody who's South Asian because they think they look Muslim, they're not the most discerning of people. Anybody can get caught up. What role do you think the press has had in whipping up anti-Muslim sentiment? And you know, is there a way to cover cases of Muslim terrorism without contributing to these harmful stereotypes? I mean, when you've had major newspapers um, hosting a columnist who review, uh, refers to refugees as cockroaches. You know, in Nazi Germany, they refu- refer to uh, Jewish people as vermin. It's not difficult to see how it is. But then even in legitimate cases of terror, they choose to focus on a, a, a young far-right terrorist. Suddenly, 
the fact that he might have been a grammar schoolboy comes up or their grades or just absolute right. shock that a nice young white man from a middle class family could commit such an act. And also, I think we should focus more on the victims in any case of violent crime, especially one that's designed to provoke terror and attention. I don't think those people, by painting them as those shadowy, almost inhuman monsters, you kind of playing into their narrative. I mean, of course, as, as, as journalists, we have an obligation to cover the news, and terrorism is absolutely news, and it is a problem, but you can do it in a more sober and responsible way, which is, of course, not the way of the tabloids. So do you think it's completely fair, then, that, for example, in this episode, I'm talking to Cameron for pretty much half the episode about one case of Muslim extremism. Do you think that's... that's well, that is the biggest... The, big, the biggest terrorist trial that happened in the UK. I mean, if we were recording this podcast in the 1970s, we'd probably be talking about the IRA and uh, random political groups uh, hijacking planes. It's just what's happened. It's just the zeitgeist. And that's it for this episode. You've heard from Sophia Daru and Cameron Charters. Carolina Haranskar produced this episode. If you're feeling generous, leave us a rating. Pop us a quick review. I've been your host, Charlie Jones. See you next time.